Um, all right, here we go. Uh, welcome again to RUF. Uh, what is RUF? RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship. We are a community of people learning to love God and love Carson Newman together. Uh, and what, what we mean when we say that is um, we are a community. We're trying to build a group of people on this campus who will uh, come and sit in a room and sweat together uh, for the sake of the gospel. Um, yes, it is hot. I'm sorry. I did not know this. Um, but uh, yeah, we're here to build a group of people that you can find uh, people that you um, can get to know and love and care about and be friends with. Um, we say that we're learning to love God together, that I know in a room like this, uh, there are a lot of you coming from a bunch of different backgrounds. Some of you have been Christians for a long time. Uh, you know and love Jesus, and uh, you're looking for a place in college to grow in your faith, and we want RUF to be a place that you can do that. Uh, we, we also know that uh, many of you may be bringing uh, different questions. Maybe you're struggling with your faith. Maybe uh, you grew up in a Christian home, and now you're in college, and you're just trying to figure out what does it mean uh, to be a Christian, we want to be a safe place for you to ask questions. And maybe you're here tonight and you're not a believer at all. You don't know or care anything about this. You just wandered in here because somebody invited you. And uh, we're really glad you're here and we hope that you will, um, that you will, find, uh, you will find not only friends, but you will find, uh, find a Savior who knows your name and loves you. And that's um, what we're doing. Um, we're also here to love Carson Newman together. We want to be involved on campus uh, we want to do stuff um, as the school puts things on. We want to love our school. We want to embarrass ourselves in things like intramurals and uh, open mic nights and all kind of fun stuff like that, that we want to be active in the life of this campus because, um, because the Lord calls us to love the places that he's planted us. And, uh, and finally, we say that we're doing it together, that we're not doing it alone. Um, and again, my name is Chandler. I'm the campus minister here. Uh, Mary Ellen, our intern, she's right there in the back. Mary Ellen, raise your hand, wave. Um, so we're here for y'all. We want to get to know y'all. Um, as Anna said, um, we want to take you to lunch, take you to coffee, uh, learn about you, be friends with you, those kinds of things. And, uh, and then also just like plug for fall conference, go to fall conference. It's going to be great. And there's like a bunch of group meetings you can join. So look into that. So, um, welcome back. Uh, last week was a lot of fun because I got to do cool things like tell you about how amazing the gospel is. And how like beautiful it is that Jesus died for your sins. And tonight I get the distinct privilege of telling you about those sins, right? Um, it's, not, it's not the most exciting thing in the world. But if we're going to take God at his word, we have to deal with what he says. And I think about it like this. If, you, um, if, you, if you're not feeling well and you, and you go to the doctor and you just sit down and, he's, and you're like, doctor, heal me. And he's like, well, like what, like what's wrong? What's your medical history? And you're like, shut up. Don't ask me anything about my past. Don't ask me anything about how I got here. You just tell me what's wrong with me and fix me. Don't even tell me what's wrong with me. Just fix me. And, and the, the doctor like can't do that because he's got to know your medical history. Same thing. If you ever do something like go to counseling, like they're going to, they're going to get really involved in your family life and all the stuff that you don't want to talk about. That's what they're going to ask about. Or if you think about like a superhero's origin story, right? You have to go back through some pretty hard stuff. That's kind of what we're doing here. And as we talk tonight and then, uh, and then again in two weeks through, as we kind of go through the second half of Romans 1 and kind of end up um, somewhere in Romans 3, um, remember this, that, that this section of Scripture ends with Paul saying that there is no one righteous, not even one, so that 
if you somehow like get through tonight and you're like, okay, I didn't check off any of those boxes, so I'm in great shape, come back in two weeks because I'm going to just like get a running start and just step all over your toes. And you're going to hate me for it. I hope not. But we'll see. But um, so I'm trying to kind of like give y'all uh, the sermon in a sentence as we get started. If you're the kind of person who likes to take notes, this is going to have the points of the sermon in it. But, um, but it is, uh, the sentence is this, God is angry with those who know better and he shows it by giving them exactly what they want. So God is angry with those who know better and he shows it by giving them exactly what they want. So first off, God is angry. Um, and we can all we can all relate to anger, right? Like we all understand that. That's one of my uh, one of my favorite scenes in the entire Avengers series is in the first Avengers movie when they're talking to uh, to Bruce Banner and they're like, "How like how did you like how did you not be angry?" And he was like, "That's my secret. I'm always angry." And then he turns into the Hulk and starts smashing things, and it's fantastic. It's a great scene. Um, but anger is an emotion that we can all connect to and identify with, and. And if you think about what your life has looked like over the last three years, uh, because it has been a uniquely stupid time in American history, um, we've all been angry at everybody else for everything, right? Like if you're more, like if you're more conservative, like you're just angry at people who are more liberal because like, oh, they're just sheep, they wear masks, you know? And if you're more liberal, you're angry at people more conservative because those idiots just don't trust the science, Right. And we just go like back and forth and it's like, it's crazy. And, uh, and it's almost paraded as a virtue. Like there's a thing, uh, there's a thing that, a uh, thing that kind of went viral of people just saying like, if you're not mad, then you're not paying attention. Right. We've kind of dealt in anger. But when, when you, when you start to talk about God's wrath, people tend to have one of two responses. The first response is, oh, great. You're one of, you're one of those Christians, right? That, uh, you just all about the wrath of God and how angry he is and upset he is. And how can you, how can you possibly believe in a God who gets angry? Like how, how barbaric, how Old Testament of you. Don't you know that Jesus is, uh, he's love and all this other stuff. And he is that. But then some of you also are going to hear me talking about the wrath of God. And you're going to be like, great. You know, finally, somebody's going to get back to the, to the Bible preaching, Right. <laughs> And if you go back to like the like the like the preacher clips on Instagram of like all the all the um, the guys who are just like constantly like throwing their Bibles on the ground and just screaming and God's mad at everything and if like you watch Harry Potter you're unclean and going to hell and uh, have you have you seen the state of America if God doesn't do something he's got to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah like those are like those are kind of the two ways that that we think about God's anger right we either uh, we either just dismiss it as barbaric or we're like yes. And we, and we frame it in a way that God is mad at everybody but me. But neither one of those approaches is the correct one. Um, like I said a second ago, we have to deal with the anger of God because, because it's in the Bible. And if we're going to be people who take God at his word and take his word seriously, then we have to deal with God's wrath. We have to engage with it in a way that takes it for what it is. So what is God's wrath and why do we have to deal with it? The first thing that I'll say about what God's wrath is, is what it's not. That God's wrath is not our wrath. Um, that we, uh, sometimes we get angry over the right things, right? We see, uh, we see terrible things happening in the world. We see people being treated badly. We see war. We see poverty. We see famine. We see all this kind of stuff. And we get angry with it. And we should. 
because that is the correct response. However, most of the time, we get angry over the wrong things. Um, like, I have harbored a blood feud with Miranda Lambert for like four years now because she stuck her nose in Evan Felker's business and the Turnpike Troopers had to break up for three years. More people get that reference than I thought we're going to, and so I'm excited to say that. Miranda Lambert never did anything to me. I've never met her. And it's not her fault. And yet I'm furious at her. And, and I want you to think about those things. Like, what are those things that are completely irrational that send you into a blind rage? They have nothing to do with you, but you see about it, you hear about it, and you get furious. Right? Some of y'all know me well enough to know that if I can work in the like angry old man being like, oh, cell phone's bad, social media bad, like I'm going to do it. So I'm going to do it. Um, but like a couple years ago, kind of at like the, at like the peak of like, like COVID going on and COVID hysteria and stuff, like I, I would just open Twitter and see what other people that I'd never met said and would be so angry that like, I don't know how I didn't like throw my phone through a wall. Um, and, and I've never actually like thrown anything at a wall or like punched a wall, at least not because of Twitter. Um, but, but it did occur to me. It didn't make me mad, but here's why, here's why I think this is important. Here's why I feel like I need to say this. Um, and there's a writer named Anne Lamont and my favorite thing she's ever said is that the biggest difference between you and God is that God does not think he's you. Think about that for a second. And part of the reason that we have a hard time with God's anger is we cannot differentiate between God's wrath and our wrath. See, if, if I fly off the handle at, at stupid things, at little things that have nothing to do with me, wouldn't God do the same thing? It's the same emotion. Or maybe, again, just knowing the state of the world that we live in, some of you have been the, the victim of anger like that. That you've suffered things at the hands of other people who fly into a rage like that. And if and you've seen that anger and you've seen that rage in other people and you look at God and you're like, if God is anything like that, then I want nothing to do with him. I understand that. But here's the thing. God's wrath is different. John Stott says this, that the wrath of God is almost totally different from human anger. It does not mean that God loses his temper or flies into a rage or is ever malicious, spiteful, or vindictive. The alternative to wrath is not love, but neutrality in the moral conflict. And God is not neutral. On the contrary, his wrath is his holy hostility to evil, his refusal to condone it or to come to terms with it, his just judgment upon it. And I want you to think about it this way. I, um, some of y'all have met my family, you know, my wife Leah, my two boys. Um, but let me just simply ask you this. Would I be a loving husband and father if there was something that was threatening my wife and children and I just stood by and did nothing, would that be an act of love? It wouldn't be. In fact, that would be, uh, that would be one of the cruelest things that I possibly could do. And so here's the point, that it's actually, it is actually good news for you that God gets angry because it shows us that God is not content to sit by as the things that hurt his creation particularly the part of creation that bears his image, as you look around this room full of people, like that's who we are, that God is not content to sit by and let those things get hurt. Tim Keller says that if you don't understand or believe in the wrath of God, the gospel will not thrill, empower, or move you. 
You see, in order for us to see the beauty of the gospel, we have to see the ugliness and the horror of sin. And that ugliness and horror needs to bother us. And so I don't know, like, tonight, I don't know where you are with your faith. I don't know, I don't know why you're here. I'm glad you're here. Um, I don't know why you came to this tonight. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're here. Uh, I, I, know, I know me as a, as a college freshman um, was, was kind of like unsure about what I believe, kind of bored with what I believe. Like, what, what does this have to do with anything? And, and I know for me in my own heart, it was because I had never really taken a step back to wrestle with the bad news that made the good news necessary. I had never thought about my own sin as something that I was responsible for and that God was rightly angry at. And so I want to ask you the question that is it possible that the gospel doesn't feel like good news to you because you've never stopped to reckon with the bad news? I want to encourage you to do that, to to take the time to think about that. But the next thing we see is that God is angry at people who know better. And here's my suggestion to you tonight, okay? If you're going to be offended by anything the Bible teaches, if you're going to be offended by anything the Bible teaches, that includes sexuality, uh, gender roles, um, you know, Old Testament law, like whatever. If you're going to be offended by one thing that the Bible teaches, let it be this right here. Because Paul is saying that every single person on the face of the earth knows God, but is actively fighting and resisting and suppressing that knowledge. So what that means is that you are not indifferent to God or to the things of God. There is no single person on the face of this earth that can look at God and say, you know what, I'm not interested. You know, God, you go do you, I'm going to do me, and maybe we'll square it up later. No, you are actively suppressing and actively fighting against the knowledge of God. Paul writes that for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in these, uh, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, this this flies in the face of our desire to see other people, to see ourselves as just basically good people who are trying to figure it out. We're all basically good people just trying to get to God the best we can. Now in Romans 3, Paul says, he's quoting from the Psalms, he says, no one understands and no one seeks after God. Let that sink in for a second. No one seeks after God. I can't remember uh, where this came from, but a few years ago, I read uh, an interview with somebody, some atheist thinker, um, and the interviewer asked, asked him, what would you say to God if you met him in the afterlife and found out that he was real after all? And he asked you why you didn't believe. And this guy, without skipping a beat, he said, not enough evidence. You didn't give me enough evidence to believe in you. And God is saying here in his word that, no, I've given you plenty of evidence. You have just willfully ignored it. And you've done everything in your power to fight against it. Psalm 19, 1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And this is this idea of, uh, this is this idea of what we call general revelation, right? That you can look 
at creation and you can see that there is a God, there is a design behind it, and that you can learn things about the creator. You can learn things about this designer based on the goodness of his creation, right? The best art, think about this, the best art, the best music that you know, the best uh, even uh, TV shows, artwork, whatever, the best art that you love reveals the character of the artist. Um, there's a, in our first church, there was a, uh, there was a guy, um, his name, uh, his name's Kim Sessoms and he, is, he's a, he's a very successful, he's a very successful doctor, but I'm convinced the only reason that he actually practiced medicine was so he could pursue his art hobbies because this dude was a phenomenal, like, and he would just get, he would just get in these like mindsets where he would like, he'd spend like six months doing like nothing but like charcoal sketches. And then he'd be like, Oh, I'm going to try sculpting. I'm going to try writing me like he, and he could just do it all. It was amazing. But he, um, as he, as he really kind of developed his passion for sculpting, he started to, uh, he started to write the initials of his children on every one of his sculptures and only he knows where they are. Um, but, but he's done a few, like I'm from Mississippi. If you didn't know that, I'm going to talk about it a lot. So sorry, I'm not sorry. Um, but uh, he's done a few notable pieces just around the state, and I know where a few of them are. And every time I see him, I'm trying to find where he's put his children's initials. Because that reveals something about the character of the artist, that he loves and cares about his children, that he's proud of them, and he wants their names to go down in some semblance of permanence in the same way that his art does. And it's the same thing with God, that we see his heart, we see his love for his creation in his handiwork. You see, we, like, God doesn't, like, if you think about it, God didn't have to make food taste good, right? Like, he could just make, like, stuff that just had sustenance and it gave you the nutrition. But instead, he made stuff like waffles, and, like, and bacon, and, like, smoked meats. Like, God made a bunch of amazing tasting food. He didn't have to do that. But that reflects the character of a God who loves his people and cares about them. We see God's heart revealed in his handiwork, but what Paul is saying here is that we have seen it and we have willfully ignored it. We've looked at it and said, we don't want that, we want something else. But then, but then look at what else that these, these people are doing. They're, they're taking credit for God's work. Like, how insane would it be if I sat down and I said, y'all, y'all, y'all don't know this about me, but a few years ago, I wrote a song and it's called Stairway to Heaven. I wrote the guitar parts. I wrote the lyrics. I wrote, I wrote the, the guitar solo. Like, it's all, it's all me. You would look at me like I'm a crazy person because, A, it was written before I was even born. And, I, like, I'm old, but, like, the song came out before that. I think it did. But, like, I'm not creative enough to write Stairway to Heaven, and y'all know that about me. But what if, like, what if we just walked around taking credit for other people's art? Again, that would be insane. And yet we take credit for God's handiwork all the time. Verses 22 and 23, Paul says that they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And y'all, this is the language that the Bible uses from beginning to end to describe this thing called idolatry. That, that idolatry is taking something that is not God and giving it the credit and the power that only God deserves. See, Paul is not saying here that men suppress the knowledge of God to worship nothing. Paul is saying everybody worships something. 
That your choice is not whether or not you will worship something. Your choice is just what will you worship. Um, and I'm actually not going with the David Foster Wallace quote that I do all the time. Um, but I'm going to go with Tim Keller. Shocker. But Keller says this, we must worship something. That we were created to worship the creator. So if we reject him, we will worship something else. We are telic creatures. We are purposed people. We have to live for something. There has to be something which captures our imagination and our allegiance, which is the resting place of our deepest hopes in which we look to calm our deepest fears. Whatever that thing is, we worship it and so we serve it. It becomes our bottom line, the thing we cannot live without, defining and validating everything that we do. Y'all, this is the language of idolatry and addiction. That we take the things that cannot give us life and we seek after them and it just becomes this brutal cycle that takes us down even further. So what is that thing for you? Like what is the thing that you most long for? Um, John Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories. That our hearts will produce anything. I don't know if y'all have seen the show, uh, the TV show Community, but there's this really funny scene where uh, Jeff Winger takes the number two pencil and he's like, this is a number two pencil. I'm going to give it a name and he gives it a name and he breaks it in half and people are sad. He's like, why? Because we na- like, you can create something to worship. You will create something to worship. And so what are those things? What are the things in your lives that are absolutely untouchable? What are the values or the identities about you that are, that are untouchable? What are the things that you give the glory that only God deserves? What is it uh, that you find your mind drifting towards in idle moments or in moments of desperation? What's the thing that you said, if I could just have that, if that one thing could just happen the way I need it to, then everything else would make sense. That's your idol. That's what Paul's talking about. But then Paul closes it out by saying that God shows his wrath by giving them exactly what they want. And so, like, that's kind of surprising if you think about it. Like, that's kind of a surprising idea because when you say things like God's wrath, like, we think, like, hellfire and brimstone. Again, like, I'm going to be, like, watching Harry Potter. There's going to be, like, a lightning strike, and I'm going to die. And it's going to be, the house is going to burn down, and everything is going to be a disaster. And that, that is eventually a part of it. There is a final judgment that comes where, you know, the people apart from God are thrown into the lake of fire. Um, But I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. I don't think that's the version of God's wrath. But Paul is saying that God shows his wrath to you by giving you exactly what you want. Which at the end of the day is just living your life without him. That he's willing to say, cool, you want this? Here it is. Go take it. Three times Paul says something to the effect of God gave them up. God gave them over. And the word here is uh, is for sinful desires. But the word here for simple desires is the same word as, uh, as lust. And while lust is, um, while lust often does, and in this passage we see it, lust does contain uh, a sexual element to it, it's not always sexual. Because lust at its core is an over-desire and something that becomes all-controlling and longing. All-controlling drive and longing. So lust is making something that is good into something that is ultimate into something that becomes the central focus of your life that you will do anything to get. Right? And so that's why, that's why sex and lust do have such a powerful connection. And look, the, the elephant in the room 
is that Paul does specifically mention homosexuality in this passage. Again, this is the second week of large group, and like I'm already the guy that's talking about the wrath of God and like homosexual. Like, we're just hitting the bingo card of like controversial topics and like let's go. Um, but I don't think that what Paul is doing here is is attempting to like lay out the entire Christian sexual ethic. But he does mention he does mention sexuality as a way that his wrath is displayed. And God sa- and Paul says this is not the sign. There are a lot of other signs in this passage, and we'll get to those in a second. But this is a sign of God's wrath. And this is one of those bludgeon passages that whenever people start to talk about sexuality, it's like, see, like Romans 1 says it clearly, like, ah, you know, like, and we yell about it and thump our Bibles and do that kind of thing. But that's, again, that's not what Paul is doing. Paul is just saying that all sexuality is susceptible to this because he also mentions in verse 24, heterosexual immorality. So hear this, that what Paul is saying, he's not singling anybody out. He's He's not singling anybody out, but he's also singling everybody out. So I don't, that, that makes sense in my mind somehow. But um, any expression of sexuality that falls outside of God's design of a man and woman being in the one flesh union of marriage is an example of being given over to the desires of the flesh. And, and it's on display in more than just sexuality. Like, look at what Paul says. Like He goes through all manner of unrighteousness, um, evil, covetousness, malice, Uh, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossiping, slandering, hating God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. (laughs) Like that one kind of feels out of the, out of left field a little bit. But what, what, what Paul is doing here is he's laying all of this out that like you are trying to live your life apart from the way that God has designed it. C.S. Lewis says that the lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom that they've demanded and they are therefore enslaved. This is how addiction works and idolatry and addiction are closely related. So you escape from your problems by drinking and it feels good, right? You're free and uninhibited and you're not worried about whatever it is that's weighing you down and it's wonderful. Except that throughout the process, you start to become more addicted to this thing and it starts to drag you down further. Drugs, sex, alcohol, your longing for approval, your fight for control, all of them work the same way. That they take everything, they give you nothing, and then they demand more. And they eventually kill you. So, good luck with that. Uh, Cynthia Heimel is an entertainment writer. I've used this this quote before, but um, Cynthia Heimel is an entertainment writer, and she's not a Christian, um, but she, she kind of was right place, right time, and knew a bunch of celebrities before they got famous. And she said this. She said, I pity celebrities. I really do. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, and Barbara Streisand were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize it isn't enough. You see, Sly, Bruce, and Barbara wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each one of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, had happened, and they were still themselves. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. And I think she's exactly right, except that I don't think that God's playing a joke on us by doing that. I think God is giving us what we want to show us that there is nothing worse than getting what you want. 
There's nothing worse than that. That that's actually God's wrath. And so I want to ask you this question as we start to wind this down. Is it possible that the dissatisfaction that you feel with, with your life is actually God and is completely just anger handing you over to what you want to show you that nothing other than him is ever going to satisfy you? That nothing other than him is going to meet your deepest longings, is going to meet your deepest needs. That maybe your frustration with your relationship with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, maybe the emptiness that you feel after looking at porn or hooking up with somebody or waking up hungover, or the disappointment that you feel even after you've kept your 4.0 for an entire semester is actually God giving you exactly what you want to show you that none of that stuff is ever going to measure up, is ever going to be enough. And if that's true, can you possibly start to see that maybe Maybe God's wrath is actually his grace to you to show you while there is still time left in your life that there's something beyond these things, that there's something that can satisfy you. And here's here's what I think you should take away from these verses, that God's hand and work is present in all creation in such a way that you and I have no excuse whatsoever. And we suppress that knowledge, and apart from Christ, we're all handed over to our depraved minds one way or another, and it leads to death every single time. So we'll end with this, y'all. This is a, this is a hard passage, and, um, and there's, really, there's, really no, there's really no way around that. And if you read these verses, like, there's not a ton of like, eh, Jesus loves you, so let, let's, you know, forgiveness, all this other good stuff, right? Um, so it's kind of it's like, it's kind of hard. But I've told y'all often that my hope for you in RUF is that you will learn to take Jesus and the Bible seriously and not much else. And so if we're going to take him seriously, we have to take these hard passages seriously. But I also hope that y'all know me well enough to know that I'm not just going to leave you with, you're all sinners, there's no hope, that's all. Hopefully you know me better than that by now because there is hope. Because in another one of Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, an almost identical list of sins shows up. Listen to what Paul says. Or do you not know that the unrighteousness or the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These are very harsh words, but listen to what he says next. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. That's that's the good news, that there is still hope. Why do we have this hope? And we're going to sing it as the band to close with in Christ alone, because what we see in this song and what we see in the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus, the very Son of God, faced the full force of God's wrath, faced the full separation from the Father, faced the full force and weight of our sin so that we would never have to. That even God's wrath that we experience now is is pulled back so that we simply get a taste of it and that we can see because of that how good this news really is. So maybe the disappointment you feel when you get exactly what you want is an invitation to believe the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for tonight. Thank you for your word. Uh, thank you that you've given it to us. Um, 
God, these are hard words. And Lord, I pray that I've handled uh, these, delicate, uh, these delicate situations, these delicate sins, um, that I've handled them graciously, uh, Lord, and that we would see and feel the weight of your anger, Lord, because we need to. It's good for us to feel that. But Lord, that the cross would never be far from our minds, from our hearts. And Lord, I pray for those of us here tonight that we might be encouraged in this, but also for those who uh, maybe have never believed it before, Lord, that tonight might be the night. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.